It's really a pleasure uh, to be here, and I thank you all for coming out and taking some time with me today. So I'm going to talk today about this project, um, which really is uh, an effort to generate a new system to help us uh, get some advanced early warning of, of mass atrocities. Um, but before I get into describing that specific um, project, I want to just give you some background about kind of what early warning um, really is, what we think we know about it, um, how we might uh, improve it, and I think that will then segue uh, nicely into the description of the, of the project itself. Um, and I'll just give you a warning at the outset that when I say I'm going to tell you what we, we think we know about um, uh, genocide and mass killing, or at least about uh, how to forecast and predict it, the, the short answer is we don't know very much um, about it. Um, this, this whole field of attempting to forecast political events of any kind is really quite uh, new. Um, really only the last 10 or so years have people been trying to do this systematically. Um, and uh, forecasting genocide and mass atrocities even uh, even newer still. And, um, uh, and, a, and a particularly difficult example of uh, forecasting in the political sphere for reasons that I'll talk about. Um, so I don't want to give you the uh, impression that there's some kind of um, strong consensus in the field that we really know um, the predictors of these events uh, yet, but I'll show you there are a few things um, that do seem to be reliably um, correlated with it and that um, we can use those things to, to do certainly better than, uh, than we're doing already um, without these kinds of models. Okay, so um, one thing before I get into all of that that I want to get out on the table just to start, uh, because it comes up almost any time I give a talk about early warning, is... Um, well, is early warning really the problem after all? Yes, we're, we're not doing um, everything we should to try to prevent these sorts of events, but is that because we lack um, warning that they're happening, or is it instead because we simply lack the political will to intervene, even when we um, are quite certain um, that something terrible is happening, even when we can see that something is, is already... We don't need warning, we can see the, the bodies... Uh, piling up. I'm quite sympathetic to that argument, so that's why I'm, uh, I'm putting it out there um, uh, right up front. Um, I do believe that the single biggest uh, problem in um, preventing genocide and other mass atrocities is the lack of political will. It's not um, primarily the lack of early warning. But I, I also wouldn't want us, and I think it would be um, uh, a mistake, to underestimate um, uh, how important better early warning is. And that's because, um, number one, I think even in those cases that we think of, like, say, Rwanda, um, where we've all read that the United States and other countries were receiving warnings um, early on before the genocide took place, we can overstate how good that warning was, how reliable it was, how, uh, for people at the time, how easy it would have been for them to believe and act on that warning. Um, and then I think we can also underestimate how important better and uh, longer in advance early warning is, and that's partly because um, genocides can unfold terrifyingly quickly. Um, you all probably know the Rwandan genocide lasted uh, really only 100 days, and so um, getting uh, forces there to intervene uh, and react, even once you see um, that it's uh, starting to happen, uh, even another week or a few days of, uh, of advance notice could mean um, the difference between um, saving uh, tens of thousands uh, of lives. So with all that said, I think I tend to agree with this um, statement that came out of the, the 2008 Genocide Prevention Task Force, which was a group of experts 
um, led by Madeleine Albright uh, and William Cohen. I don't disagree with it because I was one of the members of the task force, uh, but I didn't write this particular part, uh, but I could have because I certainly agree, especially the, the second sentence there, um, that warning doesn't guarantee uh, prevention, but if it's absent, slow, inaccurate, or indistinguishable from the noise of regular reporting, um, failure is virtually guaranteed. So, um, so we need uh, good warning, um, even if it's not the only thing uh, that we need if we want to do something about these uh, sorts of events. All right, so now let's move uh, to talking about what do I mean when I'm saying early warning, uh, because early warning really um, is not just uh, one thing. In fact, we usually think of it, people who study it, um, as falling into three distinct um, uh, phases. The first one's called risk assessment, uh, and that's actually what the system I'm going to talk about uh, later in the talk is really designed to do, risk assessment. The second uh, phase is just called early warning. Uh, that's usually the, the, the name for that phase. And then there's a third stage called uh, communication, where we need to communicate the warning. So let me walk through each of these um, and just describe what happens in each phase, and then I'll, I'll get into uh, what we know about uh, these different phases. So um, the first phase, uh, which, uh, as I said, is, is called risk assessment, uh, you could think of as a sort of longer-term strategic warning rather than a sort of tactical uh, sort of warning. Uh, and that means we're thinking about warning about countries that are at risk of an atrocity um, from anywhere from a year out uh, to, to sometimes even longer than that, five years um, out. Um, and some of the, the work in this area, a lot of it, uh, including my own, um, tends to use statistical um, uh, models to try to help us identify the factors um, that are correlated with countries that go on to have atrocities in, in some way, shape, or form. And so um, the task of, uh, of a, a risk assessment model is to help us identify the countries that are at greatest risk um, uh, of having an event, but it doesn't tell us precisely when countries um, are going to move from this uh, risk state into actually having um, a mass atrocity. And part of the reason for that is that the factors that we look at in risk assessment models are structural factors. They're slow to change. These are things like uh, GDP, uh, the kind of government that a state has, its population. They're not things that change much on a day-to-day -day basis. And instead, they kind of describe uh, the background risk um, that a country uh, faces. So why do we need this kind of warning? Well, the main purpose of, um, of risk assessment is to help people whose job it is to try to do the other phases of warning or to respond to these um, events to, to uh, focus their resources on those countries where it's most likely to happen. So there's 220 countries in the world, um, uh, intelligence agencies, NGOs, those people who are concerned with mass atrocities don't want to spend all their time equally across all those 220 countries. They need some way to winnow down that list, um, and, uh, and this is a way um, to help do that. So one way um, I like to try to analogize to the early warning process is to think about assessing uh, medical risks, because the, the phases of early warning map quite uh, clearly onto um, the way uh, medical professionals assess uh, risks. So you could think here of, um, of this risk assessment phase as the equivalent um, of someone taking a, a screening test. A physician may be giving a patient a screening test for risk factors for, for heart disease. So do they have high blood pressure? Uh, do they have a family history of, of heart disease? Those sorts of things. And when a physician knows those things about a patient, 
it, that can't tell them when or even if the patient is certainly going to have a, a heart attack at some point, but they know that patients who have certain risk factors are much more likely in some any defined period of time um, to have an event than patients that don't have uh, those risk factors. Okay, so that's risk assessment. The second phase is the phase that's usually just called um, early warning, and it's focused on trying to identify countries where a genocide or some other kind of mass atrocity is about to occur or even might be in the early stages of occurring, but we're not uh, yet sure that it's, uh, that it's genocide. So we're seeing the, the you know, low levels of violence that precede a larger campaign um, of, of violence. And, and again, this is where we start to try to move from a country that's generally at risk to identifying factors that occur in countries that are at risk that push them over um, the edge into, into higher uh, risk violence. And sometimes these are events that should they occur in a country that we didn't identify already in the previous risk assessment stage, if they occurred in one of those uh, in a country that wasn't high on the list from risk assessment, we wouldn't worry uh, very much about those events um, because many countries are robust to experiencing these sorts of triggers. But when you combine a country that's already at high risk with some of these triggers, that's when you start to worry that something um, really bad is going to happen. So again, back to that medical analogy, um, imagine here in the early warning phase that someone comes into the hospital um, complaining of, of chest pain and shortness of breath, and the, the physician then wants to give them an EKG to figure out whether is this the, the sign of a, of a heart attack that's starting to happen or is it something, uh, something else. The last phase uh, of early warning is the communication phase, and I don't want to give you the um, impression that these phases go one, two, three. The first two are chronological, but communication actually has to happen at both um, the uh, uh, risk assessment phase and at the early warning phase. It's not just something that happens after you've got um, uh, early warning. And obviously this phase, although uh, sometimes it's left out of discussions of early warning, is super important because uh, well, all the warning in the world doesn't help if you don't communicate it uh, to the people who can actually um, act on it. And at this stage, obviously, the focus is on trying to give policymakers some um, clear assessment uh, of what might happen, um, exactly what uh, we mean when we say a mass atrocity is going to happen, um, uh, and some kind of objective uh, estimate of the uncertainty, uh, because even at this stage, we're never 100% certain that an event um, is, is going to occur, but we're trying to allow policymakers um, the information, all the information that they can to make uh, informed uh, choices. So again, back to the medical analogy, this is a, a cardiologist either um, in the, the risk assessment phase alerting a patient that he or she has certain risk factors and uh, what he or she might do to try to ameliorate their risk. Um, or uh, in the emergent phase, somebody's in the emergency room um, and the, uh, the admitting physician has to contact the surgical team and say, um, we might need to do emergency surgery on this, uh, on this patient who's having um, a heart blockage of, of some sort. So that's the communications piece. Let me say uh, a few words about some challenges uh, to providing good uh, early warning. Um, and, and those fall into, into four main categories, I think. And the first one maybe is the, is the biggest, um, and that is um, mass atrocity is thankfully rare. It happens much more than we wish it would, 
Um, but even if we define it in, a, in the kind of broad way um, that I do, and I'll talk more about this, but basically imagine uh, it's a definition that says a thousand or more uh, civilians intentionally killed in a period of about a year. Um, if, you, if you use a definition like that, you get about one of these per year historically. That's the average. So that's not very much. Remember, 220 countries in the world a year, you have to figure out which one um, is likely to, to have an event. And, and this is hard in two separate ways. So one is just the statistical problem, right? When I have so few events, it's hard for me to learn the patterns um, that help me predict when the next one is going to happen. But um, there's another way um, that it makes it difficult, which is rare but highly salient events, just like genocide and, and mass killing, are known to be, from our research on human forecasting, some of the hardest for people to actually predict. We tend to massively over-predict them um, because these events are so salient in our minds that even though they happen very rarely, um, they, they stick with us and human forecasters <laughs> tend to, to over-predict them. And that's been my experience um, with this as well, um, that uh, experts uh, tend to think um, when, we, when we sum up the probabilities for how many they think are going to occur in a year, <clears throat> it's closer to 10 than 1. And we know historically they sh their probabilities should sum up to closer to 1. Um, so it just shows you, you know, people overestimate those risks. Second um, problem with early warning um, it has to do with the lack of information that we need to make um, good uh, predictions. Uh, and that happens for a variety of reasons. Number one, uh, perpetrators have in incentives to try to hide the things that they're doing that might give us indications uh, that an atrocity um, is, is in the works. And then second, and this is one that's often forgotten, but depending on how you define certain atrocities, like genocide, there's an intent component to genocide. So most of you will know genocide's not just about counting up a thousand people over the course of a year, but the perpetrator has to have some very specific intent for it to qualify under international law as genocide. And that intent is very hard to know, sometimes even after the genocide is over. It takes a long time for prosecutors to build a case showing that the perpetrators possess the necessary intent. Um, and so imagine uh, trying to uh, uh, forecast whether a perpetrator is going to have an intent like that uh, you know, a year or, or more um, in advance. Obviously, that's a difficult task. Third, um, communication problems. So again, partly because we tend to over-predict these events because they're so salient. Um, we have a big problem with false warnings, and this is where I think um, sometimes we, we too easily um, uh, criticize those people who didn't heed the warning, say, in Rwanda, um, uh, because clearly they did get warning, um, but uh, we also know that they'd been getting warnings about Rwanda um, for many months, even uh, more than that, um, prior to the genocide. And uh, so there can be this crying wolf problem. And again, um, if you just go back and, and look um, at the uh, news reports, even, uh, you know, Burundi is still kind of on the brink, but Burundi has been on the brink um, for, you know, several years now, people forecasting um, that a genocide is about to take place. And I'm not saying that one is not about to take place. It is a high-risk country, but you can see that after a certain amount of time, that crying wolf problem um, sets in. And then lastly, and, and maybe most insidiously, you've got this hindsight bias issue. Um, and so um, think about the case of, of Libya, which is now um, getting a lot of criticism um, for the intervention that happened there. And among the criticisms, there are many, but among the criticisms are, you know what, there was never going to be a genocide or mass atrocity there anyway. Um, but of course, we don't know the answer to that because we did intervene. We, we, we thought we had warning. We acted on that warning. 
conceivably that prevented a genocide, but as a result, those people who don't believe that there would have been a genocide can't uh, uh, determine whether they were right or whether um, uh, there really was a genocide and it was successfully um, prevented. So all those things together make it really hard for us um, to develop an, an accurate um, uh, early warning system. But nonetheless, that's the business uh, that I'm in, um, and so that's what we tried to do. So let me now walk through what I think we know about these different phases, and I'll talk about some of the research, a lot of which is my own, but not all of it, um, and then I'll talk about um, our, uh, our specific system. So uh, we'll start with the long-term um, risk factors. Um, and uh, you can really group those in, into four main categories. So these are factors that we found primarily through um, uh, statistical analysis, but uh, some of these factors also uh, come through in, in different qualitative work um, that, we, that we've seen uh, be successful um, increasing the accuracy of our, of our models. The most important by far, and anyone who's uh, studied this at all will recognize this um, uh, risk factor for atrocities, is the occurrence of some other sort of, uh, of violent conflict that's going on in, in society. So usually a civil war, uh, and especially uh, an insurgency, and even there especially a large and threatening insurgency. Those are ones that uh, give uh, governments the most incentive to crack down um, and target civilian populations. But um, even a past history of conflict um, uh, also increases your risk of having another conflict, and that could be true for a variety of reasons, but a past history of, uh, of an atrocity means you're more likely to have an atrocity um, in the present. Um, second, uh, again, this shouldn't be a big surprise. Non-democratic forms uh, of government are much more likely to um, engage in, in uh, uh, mass killing uh, than other uh, kinds of government. And uh, even if we want to just back off a little from just saying democracy versus non-democracy, if we look at countries that have a long history of coups or other sorts of uh, irregular uh, extra-constitutional leadership changes, those are the ones uh, that tend to rank more highly um, on, uh, on our risk uh, scales. Third set of factors uh, that uh, sort of uh, stand out for countries that, that, that are at risk uh, would be factors that uh, you can put them in a basket where we usually think of them describing a country that has a weak central government. The government lacks the ability to really fully control uh, its population and, and territory. And there are a bunch of different indicators that, uh, that we use for this. And you can interpret some of these indicators in different ways, but again, and I could talk about it more, m my interpretation of most of them is that they're picking up on the weakness of the central state. So that's um, uh, just generally low GDP countries, poor countries, um, states with high infant mortality, and that's not because um, children are dying as a result of uh, conflict. Again, it's just an indication that the state is either too poor or not interested invest, uh, in investing in the welfare of its, uh, its people. And then just states with very large populations. It's a risk factor for a lot of different kinds of violence, civil war, it's one of the primary risk factors, and it's a risk factor uh, for mass atrocities. Uh, and then lastly, there's a basket of uh, risk factors that uh, center around um, uh, ethnicity and discrimination. But um, as I'll say in a minute, um, you can overstate the importance of these factors, even though they're the ones that most people think of first um, when they think of uh, what makes a country at risk for a mass killing or a genocide. And the, the two that we found to be consistent predictors are the salience of elite ethnicity. In other words, does it, uh, is there conflict over which ethnic group will control the government? Is that a, a key part of politics in the state? 
And uh, second, are there high levels of state-led discrimination, in other words, official sanctioned patterns of discrimination by the government against certain ethnic groups, um, whereas factors that have not been identified as uh, reliable um, risk factors include things like overall levels of discrimination in society, the sizes of different um, ethnic groups, how much ethnic diversity there is, um, hate speech, um, measures of social hardship like um, like economic crises or food prices, um, youth bulges, all of these things that, uh, that uh, are seen as risk factors for some other kinds of violence don't seem to be good indicators of the onset um, of mass atrocities. And that's not because um, those things don't exist in most countries that have an event. It's that they exist in lots of countries that don't have uh, events either. So if you look at most countries on the face of the earth, um, they have uh, some ethnic diversity and a lot of uh, bad relations between ethnic groups. And, uh, and when you compare, it turns out those, um, those bad relations aren't systematically worse in the countries that end up with mass killings and genocides than those um, that don't. So uh, they just don't do a good job helping us sort uh, those countries, which is what we're trying to do um, in the um, risk assessment phase. Let's move to uh, the near-term uh, indicators. This is the early warning phase. Um, and again, these are the factors that we want to be looking at, especially in high-risk countries. Some of these factors on their own um, might not be very good indicators <coughs> of an uh, impending uh, event, but if a country is already at risk and then um, you add some of these factors to the list, that's when the risk uh, of mass killings and genocides really spikes. Um, so I already mentioned irregular uh, leadership changes, contested elections, assassinations, um, revolutions, um, those sorts of things are important. So um, think about the elections in East Timor that preceded the, the violence there in 1999, or the assassination of Javier Mana in, uh, in Rwanda in 1994 that preceded that genocide. Um, changes in the dynamics of, uh, of a civil war, um, so it could be escalation of a, of a civil war, that's really the the, the key prompt uh, for the Darfur uh, killings in 2003, the escalation of attacks by the rebel uh, movements. Or, uh, interestingly, the opposite, the military defeat of one side or another. So again, think of Sri Lanka in 2009. It's when the rebel movement is uh, defeated uh, that we see another um, uh, burst of, of mass killing um, there. Civil protests, obviously, um, the uh, Arab Spring cases uh, come to mind, including uh, Syria began with, um, with uh, large-scale civil protests, and uh, so Libya would uh, count uh, there too, and refugee flows is the other uh, big category, and uh, again, you could think of Syria as an example of that. There are um, a couple of other factors uh, that uh, seem like they're likely to be good um, indicators, but we don't have... Um, systematic quantitative evidence for these, but uh, if we did, my suspicion is they, uh, they would work well in our models. And so that is, if we have some evidence of government planning um, in some way uh, to uh, attack a, a group, um, so that might mean uh, new policies of segregation um, against certain uh, victim groups that didn't exist um, before, the formation of new paramilitary organizations, uh, some authors have said, uh, uh, is a likely risk factor, the distribution of weapons to those paramilitary groups. Uh, and again, so think of Rwanda as an example of most of those ones that I, I just listed. Um, and then uh, new patterns of violence, evidence of targeted killings, 
um, against uh, uh, types of, uh, of victims, oftentimes no longer just uh, armed actors, but targeted killing um, of members of certain ethnic groups that hadn't been targeted before. So again, think of uh, what's happened, what happened in Kosovo uh, in the late 1990s as the um, Serbs uh, began to target uh, Kosovar Albanians and not just um, the, the KLA, but civilian supporters as well. So again, if you think about all of these factors um, together, uh, I think you can see they're kind of picking up on a, on a common theme, which is that there's some threat to elite uh, power. Um, each of these in some way uh, represents an elite that's trying to hold on to power against some threat from some other group um, in society. Uh, and sometimes it's actually picking up on, on the elite's reaction um, to that threat. Um, there hasn't been a, a ton of systematic um, work on these kinds of triggers, as you might call them. Um, but uh, about a year ago, I did complete a little project on that, and I thought I'd uh, walk you through that research just to show you um, one way that we can try to figure out whether these triggers um, are diagnostic or not for, for having an event. Um, so how did I do that? Um, well, the first thing I did um, was I started with a list of 10 candidate triggers um, identified by that same research that I just uh, walked you through. So most of these um, were on the slide that I had um, before, but these are the specific 10 that I decided to look at. So that's pulled from the, the literature and from some of my own uh, previous research. Uh, I just began with that list, and these are the ones I wanted to see. Um, did we have some evidence that they were reliable uh, early, uh, early indicators? And then I assembled a list of all of the examples of mass killing that have happened since 1990. Um, and again, that definition is a thousand or more civilians intentionally killed in the space of a year or less. I could say more about that definition, but for now, just that's the, the uh, broad way we're thinking about it. Um, and if you use that definition and start in 1990, you end up with 32 um, events since, uh, since 1990. And then next I had to decide, or I needed to figure out a way to determine whether these 10 candidate triggers are more common in country years that precede a mass killing, one of those 32 mass killings, than they are in the country years that don't have a mass killing. That's what we need to know if we want to see that these triggers are really diagnostic, like I said. And so to do this, I, I needed a comparison set um, of years, right? Uh, so I know when the mass killings occur, um, and so now I want to compare those years with some other years. And so I did that in two separate ways. So first, for each of those 32 cases of mass killing, I looked at the year before the mass killing. That's when we expect the triggers to be most common. I looked two years before the mass killing, and then I went all the way back to five years um, before the, the mass killing. And I'm going to go through each of those periods and see whether any of these triggers occurred in, in year T minus 1, T minus 2, and, and T minus um, 5. Now, of course, in a, in a real forecasting environment, we don't know whether the country is or is not going to experience a mass killing um, ultimately down the road. All we can know is whether the country is tagged as high risk by our, our forecasting models, the ones that uh, I'm going to describe in a little more detail um, later, or, or by experts, anybody who tags a country as, as high risk. Um, and since it's possible, and I think actually even likely, um, that if you just look at years that occur in countries that ultimately go on to have a mass killing, those years will look different than years in countries that, um, that don't ever have a mass killing, we want to find an appropriate um, set uh, to compare to. And so to do that, 
Um, I just assembled, uh, I have these statistical models that generate uh, risk assessments for countries. I, uh, I sorted those out into uh, each year, a new essentially watch list of the top countries at risk. And then what I did is drew a random sample of 10 country years from the top quartile or quintile of, uh, of those risk lists for each year. So I took all those countries and then just randomly drew 10 from them. So we know these are countries that are at high risk of having a mass killing, but they didn't actually go on to have a mass killing, right? So now we have these years from countries that had mass killings, but preceding the mass killings, and then we have some years from high-risk countries um, that didn't have a mass killing at all. And, and if these factors are right, we're going to see them much more in T-1 than we will in T-2 or T-5 or in that random set of, uh, of years that... Um, that happen in high-risk um, countries. And so when we do that, um, here's what we find. So the, the black bars are the T minus one years, and those are the bars we want to be high if these factors are, are uh, reliable. Uh, and then the years go back, and then the, the striped bar is that uh, those high-risk countries that never had a mass killing. Um, and as you can see, uh, these, these data came out much clearer than I thought they would. Um, I thought there'd be more noise in them. But um, the uh, T minus one years are always higher across for all 10 triggers um, than the, the subsequent years or than that um, uh, comparison set from the, the model um, uh, top 20% of, of risk scores. So that's good. And some of those um, differences are quite uh, substantial, even though we're, we're only talking about um, a grand total of, um, what did I say, uh, uh, yeah, uh, 32 cases, and um, so t I think I had a total of 100 and 106 uh, observations because there's three for each of those 32 plus 10 more for that uh, top 20 list set. Um, uh, some of these differences are statistically significant. So um, if a state gets a, a, a new leader, for example, you see that, um, where is that? That's over there. Uh, they're four times more likely to get a new leader in year T minus one um, than they are in uh, year T minus two, and even more than that um, in year T minus um, five. Um, uh, if there's a coup or a rebel attack, um, that's twice as likely to occur in T minus one than it is in T minus two, and more than eight times uh, more likely to occur in T minus one than it is to occur in, uh, in T minus five. And again, those differences are um, statistically um, significant, which when I started this, I didn't expect to find any statistically significant differences um, because, like I said, the N was so small, but the patterns are that strong. So anyway, it gives you some sense um, that these factors um, are, are real risk factors. Okay, so that's the basic discussion about uh, the state of knowledge. Let me just say um, a couple of things about um, improving warning as a segue into the, um, the discussion of, uh, of our system. Um, a couple of suggestions for improving uh, warning, uh, the four main ones. The first one is uh, pretty simple, and it's just to say there is a lot of information out there about countries, people who know about the kinds of triggers and risk factors that I've described, um, but in many cases those people don't have an incentive or a way um, to get that information to the people whose job it is to actually produce um, warning. And so we need to make it um, a, a national interest to at least do that. Even if we can't generate the political will to intervene, um, we ought to be able to generate the political will to make sure that the information that we uh, generate as a matter of course when we um, 
uh, gather intelligence on countries like we do all around the world, that that gets to the people who need that information so that they can make um, warning. And, uh, and in order to, to make that happen, we need to have recognized, established pathways for that information to get passed up um, the chain of, of command in our governments. Some of you may know in the United States, um, uh, this, these first two things um, we've made some real progress on um, uh, since 2012 when President Obama um, passed a, an executive order establishing the Atrocities uh, Prevention Board whose job it is to do exactly this. Now, the sad thing is uh, we have a new president um, coming in and uh, he's talking about getting rid of every uh, executive order that um, Obama uh, has ever passed. Uh, I was part of a, a group that was uh, working up um, some recommendations for uh, the Clinton transition team on uh, how to build on what uh, Obama had done with the Atrocities Prevention Board, and now that team is desperately just trying to see if there's any way to stop uh, the next president from uh, trashing it altogether. So, um, so we've made some progress, but there's a possibility that, um, that we'll slide back on that as well. Uh, but other governments have not done uh, as much, and again, this isn't just something that the United States needs to be um, concerned about. So those are the first two things. Um, the third thing is um, one thing we know about uh, forecasting is that it's dangerous to rely too much on any single system of forecasting, any single methodology, any single individual, or even set of individuals. The more diverse our warning systems are, the more robust they are together, right? If one system misses something, it's more likely that another one will. If one system is overwarning, it's more likely that another system um, will underwarn. And on average, we know, um, when you make lots of forecasts using lots of different methodologies, the average of those forecasts is almost always better um, than the performance of any individual uh, model uh, or forecast. Um, so we need to uh, help multiply the number of people out there who are doing warning in different ways. And then lastly, I'd say, um, and this is maybe my most important point, the best way, so again, uh, I remember how we started and I said uh, that I didn't think that the main problem um, in taking action to stop genocides was the lack of warning, but that I did fear um, that in many cases um, warning wasn't taken seriously. And one reason for that is that um, there isn't a, a place where people can go and say, this group or individual or organization or system has a track record. When they warn, we know that there's a high probability that something really will happen, and they can, that can be shown scientifically and systematically. That is the kind of warning that's difficult for people to ignore because there's a track record of success. And the problem is that even the groups whose job it is out there um, to try to issue these warnings, and many of them are doing really excellent work, NGOs, uh, groups within government, who see themselves as at least part of their function um, to give warning of where uh, things like this might happen, seldom make warnings in a way that we could even go back and establish a record like this to know what, how good they are. I've tried it myself, and you just can't do it. And that's because in order to assess whether a, a, a warning system or agency or organization is reliable, we need their forecasts or their warnings to have three characteristics. Um, there has to be a clear definition of exactly what you're warning about, right, so that we know whether the thing occurred or not. So I can't just say, I'm worried that there'll be violence in Burundi, because then if one person dies, then I could be right, and if um, a, a thousand people die, I could still be right, right? We don't know um, which I was saying. I have to be very specific about what I'm predicting. Second, I need to say when um, that 
uh, event is going to occur. And I need to do that with specific dates, right? I can't say in the near future because what that means when I made the prediction and what that means when I come back to assess the prediction could be totally uh, different things. And then finally, since none of us think that these events have a, a one or zero probability of occurring, instead they have a, 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 a conti some continuous probability between one and zero, we need to assign that probability. So we need to say a thousand or more people will be killed within the next year in Burundi, um, and I assign that an 80% chance of occurring, right? That's the only way um, that, that we can go back in retrospect and know whether an organization um, has a good record and therefore um, has earned uh, the right that we should uh, listen to them when they warn or doesn't have um, a good record. And the sad thing is almost none of the organizations who do this kind of stuff do any of those three things. Um, their warnings are much more qualitative and kind of squishy. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to criticize because I think they do really excellent um, work. But in this way, um, if we want to go back and evaluate um, how good they are at this part of their job, we really can't do it um, because we just don't know um, whether their prediction came true or not because it just can't be assessed. It wasn't specific enough um, for us to, to sort of score it um, later. So I hope that's a good segue um, into um, our project, which tries to do some of these things that other um, groups um, have not uh, been able to do and addresses some of the issues um, that I mentioned. So um, that project is called the Early Warning Project. Um, it's a, a, a collaborative effort um, of Dartmouth College, um, which means me and, uh, and some uh, colleagues at the Dickey Center at Dartmouth, and the United States Holocaust Museum um, in Washington, uh, D.C. And the goal, again, um, is to try to forecast uh, mass atrocities in the hopes of giving governments or NGOs or advocacy groups um, or even citizens in at-risk societies, more advanced and more reliable um, warnings so that hopefully they can take various kinds of action uh, to prevent or minimize um, that violence. But, uh, but hopefully um, that the, this uh, knowledge is power for them in some way, uh, shape, or form. Um, uh, what do we forecast? I've used this definition now several um, times. This is the, a bit more formal uh, definition that we use. Um, if you want more on this, you can go to the website, and there's a lot of discussion of this uh, definition and the pros and cons, and of course it's somewhat arbitrary. Why do we pick 1,000? Why not 1,015? Obviously there's no uh, answer for that. We have 10 fingers, so it's going to be a multiple of 10. Um, but this is the basic idea. It's broader than genocide, obviously, so there doesn't have to be the intent to destroy a particular group as such, um, but, uh, but they do have to come from... Um, uh, from, a, from a specific group rather than um, that uh, a thousand completely unconnected murders happen in a country or the government kills a thousand criminals involved in completely different crimes across uh, the country. They, they do have to belong to some sort uh, of, of group just to rule out um, those kind of uh, things that are happening all the time in a country but aren't part of a single discrete act on the, on the part of, um, of the government. Um, so uh, how does it work? There are really two main parts to the early warning project. One um, is a statistical early warning model, um, which I'm going to talk about and I've been alluding to. And the second, uh, and this part I haven't talked about much, is um, the use of uh, systematic polling of human forecasters. 
Um, so we, we're doing uh, both of those things. Um, and the idea is um, to, to take all these forecasts and make them publicly available on the web. Um, I don't mind if you, if you have your phone, you can go ahead and look at it while I'm talking. Um, so that um, all these different groups from civil society to government um, can access it and use it in whatever way uh, uh, helps them the most. So let me start with the, um, the statistical um, risk assessment. So we don't just have, as I said, uh, one model because um, in part um, uh, we think it's always better to have more models uh, than one. And uh, so instead we have actually um, three models. This one is just showing two, but I'll mention the third in a, in a second. Um, and, uh, and these two models, uh, that we take the results from them and average them, uh, or three, and average them together to get um, a sort of single best uh, forecast. But let me tell you about these two main models and then what the third one is. Um, so the first uh, model, which we're calling the bad regime model, contains a list of, uh, of factors that we found um, are uh, correlates of onset of mass killing that seem to describe things of qualities of the regime that make it at risk for committing a, a mass atrocity. Uh, so you can see that list of, of factors there. They're mostly ones that um, I've been discussing uh, so far, but they're the ones that describe what type of government we're, we're dealing with. The second model, which we call the elite threat model, is not looking so much at who the government is, but what uh, kind of threat they might uh, uh, be facing, um, and uh, essentially whether they're uh, a weak um, uh, a government and therefore um, uh, vulnerable to uh, attack. There's a third model which has the funny name, the random forest model, uh, and that's just the name of a, a machine learning uh, process that takes the uh, factors from both of these other models and throws them all together, making no assumptions about the functional form of their relationship uh, to the onset of, uh, of mass killing. Uh, and, uh, and spits out a, a separate uh, forecast. So it's, it's just a, a different um, statistical technique, um, but it doesn't have a, a different underlying theoretical uh, assumption about the causes of uh, mass killing um, or genocide. And then, like I said, um, to get a single best forecast, we put all three models together and essentially take the average. And that produces a risk score, and I'll show you those in a minute for the different countries. Um, and that risk score can be used to make a, a forecast about whether a country's likely or uh, how likely a country is in the next year to have a, a mass killing. Um, how accurate is the model? Um, uh, you got to remember when we're talking about accuracy here, since uh, we don't predict uh, 100% or 0%, um, uh, it, describing the accuracy of a model like this is complicated. But let's just imagine um, that we pick a, a threshold uh, above which uh, a, a risk score, we're, we're going to say, we're going to predict that that country will have a mass killing in the, in the next year. So if we pick that threshold and we pick it in such a way um, that we get the same number of countries, the same percentage of countries that have a mass killing correct as we do the same number of percentage, uh, the same percentage of countries that don't have a mass killing correct, that percentage works out to 77%. So in other words, we get 77% of countries correctly classified that have mass killings and 77% of countries co correctly classified that don't have mass killings. In some ways, that's good, and, uh, and we're, we're happy about that. But remember that, that countries that don't have mass killings list is much bigger than the countries that uh, do have mass killings list, and that means there are a lot of false positives, right? Because you're getting 23% of all those countries that don't have mass killings um, wrong every year. In fact, that means we get about 20 um, false positives 
um, for every one uh, true positive. If we used, that's of course not the way we actually use the system, but you could use it that way. If, the, if you don't like that trade-off, you could uh, raise the threshold to make a prediction, right? And then you would start to miss more countries that actually um, had mass killings, but you'd get fewer false positives. Uh, false, yeah, false positives. Okay. Um, so what does this uh, look like when we... Uh, oh, there's random forest. Um, what does this look like um, when we put it on, uh, on a map? Um, this is one way to, to view those forecasts with the darker reds and oranges uh, being countries with the higher levels of risk. So those are obviously countries like um, Sudan, Egypt's a, a pretty high risk in our model, Pakistan, uh, Burma, uh, Nigeria, um, uh, uh, Iraq uh, is at pretty high risk. In fact, um, we coded Iraq as, uh, as having a, a mass, an ongoing mass killing. Um, so that's the list from uh, 2016. I'll, I'll say, note, uh, you might not see Syria there. You're probably wondering what's going on with that. So the model is designed to predict new onsets of mass killing. So Syria already has an ongoing mass killing. So do some of the other countries that are um, darker red on this. Um, and so the model, for reasons that I can't explain, because I don't, I don't know what's going on in the model's head, <laughs> Uh, doesn't think that a second mass killing is likely in Syria, but in some other countries that already have a, a, a state-led, remember this is just government-led mass killings, um, it thinks that, uh, that there might be a, a greater likelihood of a new onset. So remember in, um, in Sudan, um, when Darfur um, began, uh, Sudan was already in the midst of a mass killing uh, uh, from the North-South Civil War that was taking place at that time. In fact, one of the reasons Darfur happened um, was a response to the impending resolution of the North-South um, Civil War. Um, but essentially, there were two uh, mass killings ongoing there. Another way to look at this um, is to just list the countries by risk score. So what this uh, map does, each of those little gray dots that goes along the line, that's one of the three models, and they're not labeled, so you don't know which model is predicting the higher risks and which are lower. And the red dot is the average of the, of the three. So you can see um, Burma uh, is at the very top of the list. Um, I just produced the list for um, this year, but I don't have the, the graphics up. Burma falls a little bit um, this year, but it's still uh, quite near um, the top. You can see um, Sudan, CAR, um, Egypt, all those countries are, are uh, high up at the top of the list. Down at the bottom here, this shows you, though, what the model says the... Um, the actual risk is of a country having an episode. And notice that even uh, Burma, the model says it's got a less than 15% chance of actually having a mass killing in the next year. So these are very low probability events. Any model that was spitting out probabilities much higher than that would be wrong most of the time um, uh, and wrong uh, pretty badly. Now, um, one downside of these statistical models is, like I said, um, it's a risk assessment model, and that means it relies on factors that are generally slow to change, slow to move, um, uh, things like uh, regime type or, or GDP. Those things um, change uh, infrequently, and even when they change more quickly, we don't know about it until the end of the year when we get new data from the World Bank to plug into the to the model, right? So even if there are changes, the best we can do is monitor those changes um, once um, annually. So, th so these models don't give us any better resolution than a year. And sometimes that resolution is even worse than that because sometimes the data that we get from the World Bank is itself 
um, out of date, so they're lagging behind and then giving us data, and then it takes us time to get the forecasts um, out there. The other problem with these statistical models is um, that they're not very specific, right? Um, uh, they only look at uh, this very narrow definition of mass killing that I gave you. It has to be uh, government-sponsored. Uh, I could talk about why the statistical models can only do that, but um, for now, I'll just leave it at that. We can only look at government-sponsored <coughs> mass killings. Um, and when we get a risk score that says uh, Myanmar, uh, Burma is at uh, high risk, it, the model doesn't tell us what group is at risk. Um, and there are countries, in Myanmar we can presume it's the Rohingya that are probably driving that, um, but um, there are other countries um, like Sudan um, or Syria, for example, where there are multiple potential victims of mass atrocities, and our model can't tell us which of those victims um, is the, the one that's under most threat. So that's a problem. Um, so how do we um, deal with that? Well, that's why we have this second um, component of the systems, which is kind of, of the system. It's kind of a wisdom of crowds um, system that aggregates the um, uh, forecast from a large and diverse group of, of people, both experts and uh, more recently we've been bringing in um, uh, more general members of the, the public um, who, uh, who work for Phil Tetlock's uh, group, uh, the Good Judgment Project. Um, and, uh, and we put them all together in this thing called an opinion pool, which just means we ask each forecaster to make a forecast in the way that I said we should all be making forecasts, in that very specific way. We tell them what event um, we're looking for, and then we tell them what time period we're looking for, and we ask them to give us a very specific probability that the event will occur um, during that, uh, that time frame. And the cool thing about this is it allows us to tap into the knowledge of and these are all the types of people we have in our, in our pool, uh, scholars, policymakers, journalists, uh, people who work in um, NGOs like Human Rights Watch and International Crisis Group. And we try to recruit these forecasters um, wherever we can find them. Uh, in fact, whenever I give this talk, I encourage my audience um, to sign up. Um, so uh, just by dint of having heard this talk, you can, you can consider yourselves experts, and I'll tell you in a moment why. If you don't think you're an expert, that's still okay. Um, uh, go here uh, and sign up and, uh, and join the Early Warning Project Challenge. That's the part of the Good Judgment Project uh, that, that focuses on this. And you'll get a list of these questions, and we can ask very specific questions. Uh, so we don't just have to ask about state-led mass killings. We can now ask about non-state mass killings, which are becoming um, increasingly um, important. And uh, then we can take all the forecasts from all the people uh, who make them, average them together and get a second look at uh, countries that we think are at risk. And again, we can ask, um, is, are the Rohingya going to be targeted? Not just is there going to be a, a genocide or a mass killing um, in Burma. We can look at lower levels of, uh, of violence. We don't have to stick to that thousand uh, level uh, threshold. Um, and so it really allows us to do uh, almost any question that might be relevant to policymakers. Um, we can ask our group. Um, uh, another um, uh, big advantage of the, uh, the expert side of the system is how dynamic it is. It's a kind of always-on, always-open system, and that means you don't just make the forecast once, say on January 1st, and then find out um, whether you were right you know, next January 1st. You can go literally as many times as you want during the year and update your forecast based on the things that you've seen in the news. And so it provides a kind of constantly changing view of what the experts are uh, and, and non-experts are thinking about um, 
the risk of, a, of an event. Let me just show you what you actually do if, you, uh, if you'd sign up. So once you get an account, um, you'd get a list of questions, and here's one um, that we asked about uh, a new episode of mass killing in Turkey. Um, uh, so we asked this at the beginning of 2016. It's now coming to be near the end of that question. And you'd go there, and then just in that little area um, where it says probability, you'd enter a probability or select one from these ranges here. And then you can write uh, comments. And I should have uh, copied some of those comments. There's a good uh, back and forth between the forecasters as they talk about uh, why they think a country is either at high risk or, or not so um, high risk. And then um, what we ultimately see is something that looks like this. So you can see this forecast. We had uh, 321 different forecasters made a forecast uh, with 1,020 total forecasts at the time I downloaded this, which was just a couple days ago. And uh, one thing that's kind of neat about this is you can see right here um, what happens um, when the coup in Turkey occurs. Um, the, the risk of, uh, of mass killing jumps uh, quite high. I think now in retrospect, higher than it, uh, than it actually should have. But as uh, it looked like things were resolving with less violence than anticipated, um, the um, forecasters reduced um, their risk. And, uh, and as of uh, November 25th, it was back down to, to near the baseline uh, level of, of, of most countries. Um, so uh, this is just one way to see what our, um, how our experts um, work. Uh, and for now, what we do, um, because this has only been running for basically a year and a half, we just average everybody's uh, forecasts uh, together. But we do know some things about people. So some people we have tagged as our special experts, and we know who they are. And so we can pull out their um, forecasts and compare them to the rest of the pool. Um, and so far, they haven't been doing any better or worse, but we really don't have enough data to go on for that. But the hope is that as we go down the road, um, what matters is not who I or people at the Holocaust Museum think are the experts. What matters is how good they are at actually forecasting these events. And so one thing we can do as time goes on is to identify those forecasters who have a proven track record of uh, making good forecasts, and we can weight up uh, their contribution to the average um, so that over time, the, um, the human forecaster pool gets better or, and better. Another thing um, that we'll likely do is, again, I told you, human forecasters tend to overestimate systematically um, these events. And we can go back and find out, on average, how much they overestimate and subtract that from all of the, um, the forecasts and get a forecast that performs better than the human unadjusted uh, forecast does. Uh, and that's a lot of uh, building on a lot of work that Phil Tetlock um, at the University of Pennsylvania um, has done. All right, I'm wrapping up now. Um, let me just tell you about a, a third element of um, the... Oh, oh, this is one other way, by the way, we do ask experts. Uh, and, uh, and maybe I'll even send uh, this email to uh, Fiona or Leslie, and they'll send it around to you guys. At the beginning of each year, we do ask our experts to rank countries. We do it in a really interesting way. Um, which is called a, a pairwise comparison survey. So what happens is uh, all the experts on our list get um, uh, this email, you'll click on a link, and you'll see two countries, the United States and Belgium, let's say. And um, below it will say, which country do you think has the greatest risk of mass killing in the next year? And you just click on the one that you think has the greatest risk. And then you get another pair, and another pair, and another pair. And you can rate as many of those pairs um, as you want. I can't remember, I think... This had something like 4,000 uh, pairs rated by 500 um, experts or something like that. 
um, and uh, the computer can then generate a kind of um, risk list with the ones at the top being identified as having the greatest risk. This is not the percent chance. This is the, uh, essentially, this is the percent likelihood that, it, that that country is the highest one um, on the list, right? Um, so, um, so that's just another way we access the experts. And this, ha this is just once a year at the beginning um, of the year. It gives you a sense what the experts were thinking in a way that's very similar to the way we ask uh, our, our statistical model to produce risk scores. All right, I promise I'm almost done. This is the, uh, the, the last part of the project. This one's kind of not um, ready for prime time, but hopefully it's ready uh, for you guys at least to just get a sense of where we're going to go. Um, the part of the early warning project that's really neat um, is that we're constantly working on new ways to improve it. And one of the ways to do that is uh, to try to leverage a big data um, component. And uh, so what we plan to do, uh, and have already begun to um, uh, do some prototype work on, is to use a, a computer-assisted process to scour uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, in fact, of news stories um, from various uh, sources, looking um, for information that atrocity events are occurring. Um, and so those uh, uh, computer-aided uh, uh, text readers will go through all those news stories, try to identify places where it essentially reads the article and thinks that it's, this is an article that describes the killing of some civilians. And then we can create a data set like that that will allow us to do two things. And the first thing is, is what we're sort of showing here. Um, this one um, uh, comes from, uh, from 2014, just from one week in January in 2014. We can use it to monitor where atrocities are being committed um, around the world. And so you can see Syria, the bigger the dot, the, the more news reports there were mentioning atrocities, um, and, uh, and some other places too, Nigeria, those are probably Boko Haram stories. So you get a sense of what that is. That will help us just monitor where things are happening, that's important. But hopefully more important is that we can begin to use changes in news coverage um, in different countries as an input into those statistical models, right? So maybe a country has a constant level of stories about civilians and then that uh, being killed and then that spikes. Um, and we'll be able to determine is that um, a better indicator um, of, uh, or an additional indicator that something uh, bad is going to happen in, in those countries um, going forward. So, um, so that's just one of the, the variety of ways we're thinking about expanding. Uh, and you can find uh, these and some other projects we're working on if you go to the website under the labs um, uh, tab. So um, that's basically it. Uh, you know, the, the last thing I'll say is I, I hope um, you'll give the website a look. And if you have questions or problems with the website, um, that you'll email either me or uh, you'll see there's contact information on the, the website. This is a new project. It really only launched fully for the public less than a year ago. Um, and, uh, and we're trying to make it better and make it useful uh, both to scholars, uh, NGOs, people working for government. And so uh, it's constantly changing. We're constantly updating it. Uh, and we'd love to have uh, your feedback. So thanks for hearing about it. Thanks, Ben. That's a really impressive project, and uh, thanks for giving us a very clear overview of it. We have time for questions now. Lawrence. Yeah, I have a kind of boring technical question about the model. It's <laughs> completely then show the, the um, 
in terms of the, the assignation of risk, I mean, do you do a, like an odds ratio where you assign a random number or, you know, 70, 30, or how do you arrive at the, the risk assessment? So I have three, so, so uh -huh. I don't have to answer all three, but one is on the, on the, on the randomness of, uh, to actually test whether you have a, a, a likely event or not likely event and assign a, a, a numerical risk factor, say, well, it's 70% yeah. likelihood versus a random assignment of in the odds ratio that you have. And the, also, the question is on the, you have a, two, uh, well, two models that you showed had nine variables, and so the, the question I had is on the, did you test for interaction effects, uh, and, and conversely, whether it, it appears to me that the, uh, there's a problem with multicollinearity because you have some that, like, you know, high income mortality, low GDP, that are likely to, to, to overstress. Uh, the, the, the predictors. Yeah. And also the, the last question is on the sample size. If you relax the sample size to five, say 500 and the duration of to, say six months, do you get, uh, is there any difference in the, in the results for, for, for the, so like many atrocities versus you know, well-established type of atrocities? Do you get any different results or, or have you done that? Okay. Um, let me see. I'm not 100% sure I got uh, your first question. I, are you asking about how we validated the, the model? Well, you, you have, I mean, it, I forgot what you call it in, you, in your... The risk, the risk score? The risk, well, you have a risk score, they said before, and then you assign a, 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 a risk uh, factor for it. And so, well, this, it, and so the, I mean, I'll have to go back to the slide, but it doesn't really matter to get the question. The risk score just comes from the, the coefficients of, so for any individual country, the coefficients of all of its independent variables, um, you know, on the, uh, on the outcome. Are they weighted those variables? They're weighted by the, the model itself. So the, they're, they're, it's a multivariate uh, regression model, basically. It's a logic profit. Uh, so it's a logit model, except for, and this answers your second question, um, the random forest model. The random forest model um, takes all those variables, including multiple interactions between them, um, and, and again, with no, uh, no theoretical underpinning at all, uh, puts them together in all, in all sorts of crazy ways just to see um, you know, what gets the best um, results. Um, did we try a lower threshold? I did not try it with, for this project, but I've been doing projects like this for a while, and I did produce a, a different um, measure of the DV that stops at, uh, at 500, although it was still a year-long um, uh, time period, so it wasn't 506 months, it was 500 over a year. And almost all the risk factors uh, worked uh, equally uh, with that lower level. So it suggests that there, there isn't anything super special about the 1,000. It does get harder as you get to lower levels of killing the risk that you might miss some that actually happened, but they just weren't well reported on, um, goes up. And so that's the main reason why we went higher than that. Um, but I think it's not uh, unfeasible to go down to 500. It doesn't get you, uh, like it didn't double the number of events uh, that we had, which you might have thought it would do. Um, it increased it, I can't remember. If, and again, we only did this for a subset of the period. I think it increased it by 30% by or something like that. Uh, Phil. 
Yeah, thanks, Ben. Yeah, yeah, really fascinating presentation. I, I just wanted to, I guess, draw you out on a couple of issues that, that seem maybe to be a bit unstated um, okay. in, in the way you <laughs> ran through this. There's probably a lot unstated. The, the, the first one was, um, I guess, this question of early warning for what? For what purpose exactly? You sort of insinuated at the start that this was potentially geared towards informing military interventions in particular, but I, but I wondered whether that is in fact what you think this is designed for, and, and whether what type of intervention you think comes out of this affects a whole lot of other parts of the project. So from the communication side of things, uh, your intended audience, uh, but potentially even the sources that you're dealing with. I mean, I would assume that different sources are going to be uh, more convincing for different types of audiences. So, you know, what kind of intervention do you think comes out of this? I guess the second thing is that there does seem to me to still be a bit of a bias in the project towards particular types of violence. And I wonder whether you aren't maybe missing out altogether or at least sort of understating other very important types of violence. And I'm thinking here particularly of violence committed by either democratic states or what we might consider to be strong states. If we think of some of the major mass killings of the last 10 or 15 years, arguably a lot of this is carried out actually by either democratic or strong states, and sometimes actually even as part of military interventions in other conflicts. I mean, I'm thinking here especially of, of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, or these are potentially conflicts with extremely localised sources. Um, so everyday conflict by intimate perpetrators, uh, some of the non-state groups that you alluded to. Um, you know, how much is your model capturing that? How much does that require a completely different source set? Um, so I'm just wondering what you, you know, think about these other types of violence. Those are really excellent questions. I and mean, basically, the short answer is I think you're right about all of those things, but I'll, I'll explain how, you're, how you are right uh, about them. So, um, so what kind of intervention? I don't, I, I, in a sense, I, I, I don't, we didn't intend this to be uh, meant for any particular type of intervention. We would hope that it could be useful to any kind of intervention. And we have briefed it to the National Security Council, and we briefed it to human rights organizations, and we briefed it to scholars. And, um, and each of them, I, I expect, will use it for their own um, purposes. Uh, I don't actually expect it will be used much for the military intervention part, if only because I don't think we're going to be doing very much military intervention. If you ask me, what do I think its best uses are? It's, um, again, to help focus our intelligence resources on a smaller set of countries than we normally do. To say um, to an intelligence agency or, again, to an NGO who maybe has to plan on where they might need to provide um, uh, relief assistance, to say, um, let's, you know, we have so many countries to look at, but this one has shown up high, and it was unexpectedly high on the early warning project watch list. Let's give them another look. Uh, let's devote a few more resources to trying to figure out if something happened, you know, how we would uh, intervene there. That's kind of my hope as to what will happen with it um, now. But you're, you're absolutely right. Um, we, we don't spell that out, and I think it will be more and less useful depending on what kind of, of intervention um, you're up to. The second part of your question was, uh, was even uh, more astute. Um, is there some bias in terms of, uh, of the kinds of cases that we are uh, forecasting? And there, there absolutely is. Most clearly, uh, we just rule out all, from the statistical model, we rule out all the non-state mass killings, which, as I said, 
Uh, one time we briefed this to someone in the Pentagon and uh, who was in charge of humanitarian relief operations, and she said, uh, well, this is all great, but, you know, I'm, look at, these are the lists of the places that I'm concerned about, and, you know, six of the eight of them are, are non-state uh, perpetrators, the, the Boko Harams, the ISIS um, of the world. And uh, so we don't predict that at all with the, st the statistical model, and all we have on that is our, is our experts. But then even there, you're still right uh, further that there's other kinds of uh, violence that's left out. And uh, one of the most important ones is violence that occurs in interstate uh, contexts. So if the United States intervenes in Iraq and intentionally kills a thousand civilians, our model can't pick that up. Um, and uh, so look at what's happening in Yemen uh, right now, where the Saudis and others are intervening um, in, that, in that war and killing large numbers of civilians, um, probably uh, quite a few of them intentionally. Our model just can't pick that up at all. Now, we could ask our experts um, about it, but the statistical model is not picking it up. Um, and then I'd say, I think you're probably also right on the, the strong and democratic states, especially when people are being killed with some semblance of due process, due, you know, uh, due process in the context of that non-democratic authoritarian country. It's difficult for us to say, you know, are those people being targeted as, you know, is this essentially a, the, the, the red purge all over again? We want to think of those things as clearly examples of mass killing. But, you know, what about China's capital punishment um, uh, policy? Is that really a, a mass killing policy? Um, and we don't get those either. So we are leaving out a lot. And that's all just the lethal violence, of course. Then there's a, a whole other category of violence that we're not forecasting. Uh, no forecasting of sexual um, violence. We're not forecasting, um, although I very much like to, um, uh, ethnic cleansing and displacement that doesn't uh, involve killing at that level. So it's the first step, and I'd say I would like nothing better than to just keep expanding out um, and seeing what we can do. This is where we're, we're started, but those are great uh, ideas for the future. Can I just add to that? Yeah. So that how, for the 32 incidents that, um, that make up the database, the coding... That's 32 just from 1990. The, the oh. model itself is based on data that goes all the way back to 1955. Okay, so we have the, over 100 The coding events. for the 1,000 per year, how is that done, and how is it distinguished from, like, Civil War data sets? Is it it's government? Yeah, so it has to be the government intentionally killing um, at least 1,000 civilians over that defined period of time, and uh, that data was originally coded by me, and then uh, undergraduate uh, coders uh, went out and subsequently verified. Um, so we now have had dozens of different coders go over that list. Um, and they're always, you know, if you look at that list, and you can get all, the other thing I should have said, all the data, including all the models, the do files for the models, all completely uh, open source and available online. One thing um, that we're actually hoping people will do is play around with that data. Um, if someone thinks they can do better than our models, they've got every, everything they need to, um, to do it. And, uh, you know, we're kind of hoping that somebody will send us an email one day and say, my model outperforms yours, and we'll say, great, we'll, we'll throw it in our ensemble. Um, so, um, but you'll find on that list some that you'll be scratching your head and saying, I'm not sure I agree with that. And hopefully, just on average, you'll think we've got them mainly right. Um, but that's the, that's the list. So it's, it's actually over 100 uh, examples since 1955. Okay. Uh, Felix. Yes. Hi. Um, th thanks 
I, I also found it really interesting, and I also have, I think, three sets of probing questions, or they might, um, I think the first two are maybe more probing, and the third is more kind of a, um, a curiosity question. Like the, the, the first is um, the, that, the, that kind of small test that you talked about, um, with the T minus one, yeah. and two and five. Yeah, we'll pull that. So these, so this is just a maybe I just didn't understand. Like, but what exactly did you test there? Because um, it seems to me that the factors that you were using came from somewhere. You didn't think them up. You didn't dream them up. So they must have come already. These, these factors. Yeah. So they must have come already, basically from from the analysis, you know, of of the cases that you then tested. So ah. so so I'm wondering to what extent you actually com just confirmed that these are the factors that matter in a way. Yeah. So, so that's okay. that, that, that's my first question. Um, oh, because you said something about theoretical assumptions, and I wasn't sure they mm -hmm. don't seem to be theoretical assumptions. Um, the 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 second is is one that I thought was missing, but maybe it's somewhere in your model. What about collective action? The collective action problem. Because after all, if you talk about mass atrocities, I mean, often you know this is about the big question of why why do so many people follow? Why why do people participate? In these mass atrocities, so th there is a big question on, on, on collective action, and and um, and there, you know, you can have this kind of argument of kind of a rational choice or kind of an emotional reason, and, and so I was wondering where, where where does your model deal with this? Um, and in particular, as I you know I, I teach a course on identity, and one of the one of the big questions is identity-based violence. Um, so where does your model uh, take into account the factor of, of identities? I mean, after all, in order to kill someone and to have mass atrocities, you need to have this clear, you know, negative identification that legitimizes killing. And so I think that that question of how do we get there, how do people get there, what 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 what, what leads to kind of large-scale assumptions that these other people are, are the other that is <coughs> worth killing and is legitimate. So basically, do you have an identity model um, in there somewhere, an identity explanation? And the final one is such a curiosity question. I, in, in a way, the, the kind of, um, especially in the end, the kind of uh, variables, or also maybe these variables, but, but, but other variables about, about you know, weak countries and, 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 and uh, non-democratic countries and so forth, they, they look very similar to the kind of um, where, do where does terrorism thrive kind of <laughs> yeah. research. And given that there's now so much resources pumped into kind of terrorist prevention research, like, you know, what are the structural factors that prevent terrorism? I was wondering, to what extent does your work overlap with that one? Um, and maybe there's an overlap that you're not quite comfortable with, um, or, or maybe you are, I don't know. Okay, those were all very good um, questions. First one, um, so do, do, the, uh, do these factors just come from the same data that we then use to test the factors, and so we just showed what we, what we showed? Um, so these factors come from the literature in general, and of course some of that literature would be looking at some of the cases um, that are here, um, but um, most of that, uh, but, but not systematically. In other words, they don't, not every case that's here was in the literature. So this is the same way we develop any hypothesis from the literature and then try to test it empirically. But the key thing is that since almost all of that literature is just looking at uh, Rwanda and saying, you know, Rwanda happened after the leader was assassinated. That sounds like it's a trigger. What we didn't know is whether in cases that had not received as much attention, periods before those, or periods in countries that didn't have a mass killing, 
did they have leader turnover at the same rate as the countries that uh, were about to have a mass killing? And what this shows is that the, that leader turnover rate is much higher in the, uh, in the immediate year before. No one had ever done that before. Um, so uh, I think as in almost any, um, you know, there's only so many events in the world, there's, there's some uh, uh, bleeding over from the data that you formed the theory on to the data that you tested it. No way we can keep that out, but it, but certainly it wasn't some kind of systematic thing where all of the observations on the left hand side ended up on the on the right hand side. But it's it's worth uh, asking. The collective action problem and uh, and uh, do we have an identity um, um, identity formation model in our model? Um, we don't, but it's not because we I disagree with what you said. It's only because trying to think about how I could. Um, code that quantitatively and get it into the models is quite um, difficult. If you have some suggestions, uh, variables, or even, even if they don't already exist, if you think that there might be indicators that that process is going on, that one could code, because we have resources. I can sick an army of undergraduates on a, on a data coding uh, problem. Um, if you had some, because I, I agree entirely that that's the kind of thing we'd like to to add in. And remember, the model is, uh, by the measure I gave, 77% effective. There's a lot of room for improvement. Um, and, uh, and so uh, it's simply missing out on a lot of important dynamics. Some of them we recognize that aren't in the model. Some we probably just don't even know. Um, but that's one that we've thought about, and I think we just don't have a, a way to measure it um, quantitatively. But like I said, if you, if you can think of one, I would very much like your ideas on it. Um, and I then, just, uh, yeah. What about like a content analysis of sort of certain language, like you know, like the Rwanda radio broadcast, or the Rwanda, just like dehumanizing language, or? Yeah. So that is partly. Um, there's another one of these in the labs section of the uh, of the webpage. I think it's posted up there. Um, Jay Olfelder and myself and an expert on. Um, uh, uh, machine coding of text sources, who's at MIT, did a paper where we attempted to say, we're going to throw all these news articles at, uh, at the text reader and figure out whether there are signals. Again, not, we're not unlike in, uh, in this, where, we're, um, where we were just looking for specific uh, incidents. These are examples of uh, atrocities. We said, we don't know what we're looking for. You, computer, tell us if certain words or phrases are appearing more frequently in those periods right before uh, a genocide or a mass killing than in the periods uh, that are not right before. Um, that experiment, although it's, I think it's up on the webpage, uh, it was a total failure. Um, we, we couldn't find any um, systematic differences in, in those news sources that we looked at, but it was a very preliminary event, and so none of us are, are willing to give up on it. But that might be a way to start to pick up increasing use of certain kinds of ethnic language, um, you know, more articles describing conflicts uh, between ethnic groups, those sorts of things. I could see that um, uh, occurring. The last question, um, don't these risk factors look similar to the risk factors for terrorism? Um, and is there some way um, to connect this research to that, or do I not, or do I not want to? It's funny that you... Um, you say that because um, I remember I, I said I was on this group who was trying to put together a plan for the um, Atrocities Prevention Board uh, for the Clinton transition team. And one of the big debates that uh, we had 
was whether we wanted to try to link mass killing and terrorism um, with the view that we thought we'd get more attention um, if we uh, could show that the, the risk factors for one were related to the risk factors um, for the other. And we didn't really come to any conclusion. There were some of us uh, who said, um, yeah, that's, let's uh, hitch our wagon to that particular star, um, and others who said, although it's definitely true that some of the risk factors are common, we don't want to mislead uh, the audience into thinking that these are the same uh, problem, which they're certainly not, although, again, we know that some terrorist groups like ISIS are both engaging in transnational terrorism and engaging in things that look like mass killing and genocide um, domestically. So, uh, you know, it, that turned into a kind of a political discussion within our group, but your observation is absolutely right. Okay, so I've got a running list here, so if you want to be put on it, um, just let me know, but um, next is... Okay. Yes. Um, I, um, I have first question is essentially is um, uh, when I look at um, the 30 countries you identified in the end, um, I wonder how much of it actually is explainable just by looking at GDP per capita. Um, if you look at the, the poorest country in the world, I'm, I'm, I can easily get see that probably 80% of them are already in the bottom 40. Yes. So in the end, how much explainable power it is really? Um, this model of predicting things can be easily explained just because countries are poor. Yeah. Um, this is my first question. The second one is that you said um, the the big data set is 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 constructed from 1955 onwards, right? But then I I, I was thinking um, many of the assumptions whether uh, atrocity com com commitment of, of com commitment of atrocity and uh, as well international mechanism, international monitoring mechanism, etc., actually can be held constant from 55 onwards. And I would say basically pretty much between during the Cold War and afterwards, the, 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 the international normative system are quite different in terms of whether certain things are, are, are tolerable and certain things are not. Um, so that means that you hold the bigger data set actually has junctions in it and actually might not be consistent yes. throughout. Um, the third point, uh, which is sort of, this is my just guessing, um, is in terms of if the chain chain events, sort of, uh, it's more of a, how should I say, like self-fulfilling self prophecy kind of thing, mm -hmm. argument, in a way that if, for example, countries identified, identified by this model <coughs> is most likely to, trip, to con commit um, atrocity, would that lead the country more likely to do that, just because of this... Mm, um, and sometimes because it's things that especially it, it leads to some element of international intervention. Um, so, for example, if a state was identified by this data set and then led to, let's say, US or other countries to try to intervene, and that action itself might actually lead to catalyzed events happening in that country might actually lead this sort of conditions to come together and, 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 and lead, lead to a backlash, for example. So I'm just wondering, yeah. on the ethical part of, of this kind of uh, data uh, might be used for a political project. Those are all really good questions, um, and I, I think you're on the right path with all of them. Um, so the poor countries thing. Um, one exercise that we can do um, is to um, see the, the contribution that each of the variables in the model makes to the overall accuracy. So we can start with um, uh, one variable and then add more and subtract until we figure out how much each uh, variable is contributing. And when you do that, 
it, you're absolutely right. The, the single variable that uh, contributes the most uh, to the model is um, a country's GDP uh, per capita. Uh, that's very closely uh, related to and, uh, and uh, both uh, kind of theoretically and um, empirically with uh, infant mortality uh, rates, which tend to be much higher in, in poor countries. But there are some exceptions of poor countries with okay uh, infant mortality rates. So those are the biggest um, contributors, but it still doesn't get us uh, anywhere near our, our, our total um, level. But, it, but the, the sad thing is that when you work with this data, all the things that we think of as theoretically interesting, these variables measuring ethnicity, uh, elite salience, all those things, they add like this much. Um, and, you know, we've got 15 of them, and there are three or four variables, population size, GDP, um, uh, infant mortality, uh, uh, regime type, that are doing the, the bulk of the, the work. So for all that the great theoretical thinking that people like me do, um, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's those blunt force factors, so I think you're totally right. But remember, poor countries are poor all the time, and uh, not all poor countries have these things. So one thing that we need these models to do is to ask, why is a country that's poor, um, when is it going to transition from just being a poor country? Uh, there are many poor countries that don't have these events from a poor country that does. And that is kind of where the other variables come in. Um, uh, the data starts in 1955, but haven't the patterns of mass killing uh, uh, changed for a whole variety of reasons since 1955. Absolutely, they have, and I probably should have showed you um, just, uh, I have a, a nice little chart, I think it's on the webpage, of the frequencies of, uh, of new onsets over time since 1955, and they follow, if any of you have seen uh, a, a graph of uh, Civil War uh, onsets, they follow a very similar uh, pattern where they, they start out a little lower in the 50s and start to rise in the 60s. And then you see this uh, a dip uh, starting in the mid-90s that's quite um, substantial. So many fewer new onsets um, in the post-Cold War period than in the height of the, the Cold War, you know, end of the Cold War period. How do we deal with that? Um, well, one thing I, I should, probably should have made clear is the, the way we um, generate um, our, um, our risk assessments is that we divide the sample of all the years from 1955 to, um, to the present year um, up into two groups. So one is the training set and one is the test set. Um, and we, we put about um, two-thirds in the training set and one-third in the test set. Those years are, gener are, are pulled randomly. They're not consecutive, so it's not like uh, we do 1955 to 1989 are the training set and then the subsequent years are the test set. So we're, we're training on the whole set, which means that those differences get averaged out. Essentially, they're noise in our, in our model. If we had, and in some of our models, we've tried to include variables that were time, you know, time period. So is this a year that occurred before, say, the end of the Cold War? Uh, sometimes we've just used uh, time counter variables in the model just to say, you know, how, how long is this since 1955? And none of those variables seem to help us very much, um, but, uh, but I'm with you that there's probably something going on um, with time. Then the last one is the most interesting, maybe. Um, you know, uh, could this become either uh, self-fulfilling or uh, the thing that maybe I worried about more um, is uh, self-vitiating in the sense that... Um, if the model is right and develops the track record that I said it would need to develop before people really should take it seriously, 
um, uh, then would people start to look at that track record and say, ah, the model says this is likely to happen, and uh, you know it's been right 80% of the time, and so we're going to either do something to stop that thing from happening, and uh, then our model is wrong, right? Because for, back to that hindsight bias thing, if, if whatever model uh, our government was using uh, when it assessed the risk of uh, violence in Libya um, was correct, that there was going to be a mass killing in Libya, um, well, the model made itself wrong in that case. And the more reliable our model is, the more likely <coughs> that someone somewhere would use it to take action uh, to make it wrong. Or, um, like you said, it's conceivable that someone would look at that and say, oh, this model says um, that uh, we have a high risk. I bet they're going to come intervene um, and, uh, and uh, take us over. We better um, get rid of this threatening ethnic group now. I could imagine that. I, I'll say I think we're, we're a long way from that still. Um, you know, that's the kind of uh, holy grail for, uh, uh, for political forecasting, to have a model where this could even be a, a problem. In other words, that people would take it so seriously that it would start to have an influence on the, the real world. And if we get to that, uh, to that day and then we have to start thinking about whether to keep this secret, um, then that would be a good day for, for us in the sense that uh, it means that we did our job well. Just going to kill 999 Yes, that's right. The other thing is they'll learn to just stop at 999. Or you stop killing, then you start disappearing, imprisoning, whatever it is. Gosh. You guys are... You disappear rather than torture you because then there's no bother. Anyway, you're up next. So I think this is fascinating and great work. And all I'm... Really trying to get you to do and pushing you a bit more is to get you to reflect on the exercise as a whole, like the sociology of this kind yes. of, of work. So one, one, so it'll all come together hopefully but in, in the comments I'm about to make. Uh, in picking up on Enze's point, I had a different thought, which was: Does anybody try to argue that there's potentially a deterrent effect here? That by warning governments that you're onto them, effectively, they might. Because you see this a lot in the transitional justice literature, that the threat of a court action should deter atrocity. Do you see any um, element of that? And I want to link this into, as it were, what people do with this research. Do NGOs make that argument? My, my, my reading, and this is a field I know a, a little about, is that NGOs would take what you're doing and do exactly the thing you don't want them to do, of course, because everything is about to become some mass killing and mass atrocity, because this is their business model. If they're saying, actually, the risk probability is that, you know, they're not going to generate the kind of storm they want to generate in Western capitals that will get people talking about armed intervention, the threat of sanctions, Security Council resolutions, all of that sort of stuff. So I'm quite interested in how the, the work is used in that way. And then that feeds into this bigger point, which is, so I'm not criticising the, the work at all, but whether this is all part of some illusion of, of control, effectively, that it's a technocratic response to what's actually always a political problem. So it gives us the impression, to a really high degree of, of um, uh, skill, that being able to do this is going to make a difference, whether or not those things happen. And I have a sort of side question maybe we'll talk about later about you know, Pinker says this is all declining. It, you know, does anything you're doing corroborate that, that the number of killings is going down? So the illusion that things will get better, uh, 
potentially getting better anyway. All that really, and I, of course you fessed up to this at the beginning, that really the question is not what's about to happen, is if you know that, can you do anything about it? Will anything actually be done about it? So we become more and more sophisticated at understanding what might be about to happen. Uh, but, you know, nothing is going to happen in Syria. And we kind of all knew that from the moment the Russians and the Americans had diverging interests, you know. One or other would be a massive international conflict, and so nothing, the Syrians are basically uh, being abandoned in that way. So that sort of, you know, the, it's, it's, I, you know it's not theatre exactly, but it convinces us that we are in control, we can potentially prevent these things, but the reality, as we know, is that, you know, this suffering is ongoing, these atrocities happen, and really nothing very much is going to be done in many places. Uh, those are profound um, points and ones I've, I've struggled with uh, a, a lot as part of this uh, project. So, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't have too many illusions about how this will be used in the sense that at the moment I think it's going to make uh, some uh, enormous difference. Uh, the, this is the beginning of something that maybe down the road uh, could, could be more useful. I do fear that what, how it will be used in the interim is kind of in the way you said you feared that NGOs will use it, people will cherry pick um, uh, the country that I wanted to warn about happens to be high on that list and I'll say the early warning project says it's high on the list. But if they want to warn about a country that's not high on the list, um, they'll just warn about that and not cite us. Um, anyway, and, and I can see that kind of thing happening among very well-meaning um, uh, people who, who are uh, trying to do their best. I mean, I don't think if I were in government, I would be putting too much faith in, in this. This would be one thing I looked at on a long list of, um, of pieces of information that, um, that I got. But I do worry um, that any time we put a number on things and make it sound scientific, um, that people will believe that it's doing more than it really, uh, than it really is. And, and we certainly saw that with the models of the American election um, recently and, uh, and how much uh, coverage they got and the temptation to, to say, you know, those are the mo- those have to be right. Look, there's a number. It said, you know, Clinton had a, a 93% chance of winning. Um, and of course, that doesn't mean the model was wrong because there was a seven percent chance that Trump uh, would win. But uh, I certainly know that the, the way most people consume those uh, models and ours, because I've shown these to policymakers over the years, and this one and various other forms, um, either I get complete pushback. I, no, you can't put numbers on this, so I don't want to hear it, and they just reject it. Or um, I get the opposite, which is, wow, this is cool whiz bang stuff. Um, you know, uh, this really uh, is, you know, why should we do anything else? This is, you know, now we've got this. And uh, neither of those reactions, I think, is the, is the one I'm, I'm hoping for, <laughs> although I admit uh, those are two very common um, reactions that I, that I get. Will, um, will it produce a deterrent effect? Um, not until that other problem that you mentioned is solved where people actually start to act on this. I think otherwise... Um, it, you know, there could be some question about does it produce like a shaming effect, um, and I'd be interested to see if you know over the years, hoping that we continue this, that there can be some evidence of uh, of shaming um, and, and countries clean up their act a little bit. Not because they necessarily think there's going to be some massive intervention, but they think it looks bad for them uh, to be there, and that hurts them in a variety of ways with relations with other countries. So that's a possibility. 
Um, but again, until we can show that this system is really providing warning in a, in a way that's helpful to the people who make decisions about intervention and not just it helps them argue for the things they were going to do anyway, then I don't think any of those other changes will happen because it won't have actually changed the behavior of people reaching out into the real world, either to prevent these things or make them worse or intervene in them in, in some way, shape, or form. But those are, I think, you know, some of the deeper questions about this that we struggled with from the start. And you know, a part of this, you know, it gets back to that uh, that last phase of of uh, early warning, which is communication. We've struggled a lot with how to try to communicate what this is and how we think it should be used appropriately, and how it shouldn't, how we don't think it should be used. Um, and so, you know, half of the phone calls that I have uh, with them are talking about, you know small words here or there uh, where we're trying not to uh, let anyone get away with the impression that we know more than uh, than we do. Um, so when you, sorry, can I just, yeah, please. When, when you engage, I mean, they, they were, many of the people involved in human rights work, which is the thing that I work on, would see themselves as academic practitioners. Yep. So I write very critical stuff about human rights and they all just think, this, you know, like, why would you do this critical stuff? Like, we're all supposed to be advancing <laughs> the project in this way. <laughs> And you sound like you're really trying to hold that line where you don't tip over into advocacy. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's just fascinating to see because once it gets a life of its own within the organisation, of course, it's like, give me whatever numbers you've got. Right. How can we sex these numbers up? You know, can we say it's 100% likely? You know, because this raises cash, it gets government. But the minute they do that, then the project becomes useless because yeah. no one can trust um, the numbers, right? And so, again, we are, we are struggling uh, with those those questions. The Holocaust Museum um, is a you know it is its own organization has its own um, interests and and sometimes you know uh, we have to try to manage within within that and and uh, this project was paid for by donors it's millions of dollars were given to this project um, and uh, so those considerations are, are you know I can't remember some donor said at one point uh, uh, I don't think I'm speaking out of school um, I really think he, he had a lot of money he was a banker. And he said, you know, I really think you need more economic um, uh, variables in the, in the model. And, and, I, and I said, you know, the, guys, this, the guy hasn't given us any money yet. And I'm like, well, sir, you know what, you give me a variable, I'll put it in the model. I can, and we'll tell you if it, if it helps or not. Um, but, you know, it was clear there was, he didn't, he, there was an outcome that he, he wanted. And, and there was a temptation to try to, um, just on that small level, to try to um, appeal to him. I think there was, Felix had one. Yeah, just to follow, follow up on that. I mean, the yeah. one thing that kind of bothered me a little bit at the start, and you ran with it, and I can see <laughs> maybe the selling point is the medical analogy. And I think that, that maybe feeds into that. It's, it's a sort of language that is used because it's very effective and people can relate to it. And yet it also, it also gives it, I think, a false sense of kind of perfection um, and maybe makes people think about what you do in these terms. Yeah. And maybe that's a bit of a danger. But don't um, you think, I, mean, I thought it was good in the sense that, I don't know if you've ever had if, if these conversations with doctors, but they're struggling in the same way that I was just describing how we struggle to, to try to give you information about your risk and your conditions without uh, implying that you're doomed or that you'll surely recover. And, and you could see it in your doctor's face when uh, he or she is trying to give you this information. 
And, and, and there, there's a whole subfield, which you may know of, within uh, the medical profession, analyzing this, how, how to communicate risk with patients. And so I, I liked it for that reason. Maybe I picked an example like heart disease, which where, where we're kind of too good, um, and maybe they're better at predicting uh, heart disease risk than we are predicting genocide risk. But there are other kinds of risks um, where the medical profession's not very good, but yet we still know um, that there are certain risk factors. Is that... Yeah, maybe. I mean, I mean, I, 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 or maybe I could have just emphasised that when I. Well, I have some uncomfort, discomfort too. But but I can see it's really a powerful way to explain. But is it that you end up sort of pathologizing these places as if you can read them as if they're patients with certain yeah. kinds of risk factors? So there's a, there's a sense of scientific certainty there, which you know isn't really comparable between estimating where the next yes but and, i sympathize and, and it just it, because it does it does remind me of you know i think it was Rumsfeld or whatever who said you know look at this cancer we need to just just cut it out and all this so this this medical language is used in in political discourse and it is quite powerful and i think it is it, it can be quite problematic and i just was thinking of maybe there's another another analogy that that you might find that might be more useful that is closer to the kind of social sciences mm -hmm. rather than trying to be biological. Good point. Okay, we're just about out of time. If anyone had was like trying to get a question in, but I didn't see them. You oh, last no. Okay. If I may. Yeah. Please. I mean, after all the professors. <laughs> I know. I feel like this quarter. Has your, kind of your hand can go. Monopolize the discussion. No, 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 no. But I don't want anyone I don't know if to my question hold back. If you want to, now's your chance. As as good as. <laughs> I, um, no, I was just wondering if you consider mass killings the one directly caused by mechanical actions by states, so like military action or even indirect mass killings, like caused by possible reforms. So we can see like collectivization, so like we see in Russia and in China, they caused one of the biggest um, uh, death ratios of all times. And uh, okay, this was the first, and so like these reforms, agrarian reforms, or like uh, relocation, deportations, and so on. And then if this model could be used not as prevention, uh, a military action, but some kind of um, um, like could lead the UN, for instance, uh, to inquire um, to each country what is going on, and if this could uh, constitute an element of deterrence. And what would, do you think about? And I do not know if I pronounce it rightly, but Duterte in the Philippines, which. Till now, he allegedly killed around yeah. 2,500 people, and it doesn't seem he doesn't seem um, to want him to stop. Um, and obviously, you could say that they are like drug addicts, as he is saying. But nevertheless, it has been like three months that he's yeah. been in power, and it has left a big amount. Yes. All very good questions. Um, the, the first one, what about people who are killed uh, not mechanically, not uh, physically, they're not shot or gassed or burned to death, um, but they die of starvation or uh, disease because of uh, government policies that are uh, inflicted on them. Um, so I strongly think those ought to count uh, for the very reasons that you uh, raised, which is 
many of the, the most uh, deadly examples of mass killings and genocides that we have in, the, in, in history. Um, that's how people died. Even in the Holocaust, it's estimated that at least a third of the um, Jews who died um, died of disease or, or starvation um, rather than being shot or, or gassed. Um, so again, if you go to the webpage, there's a longer explication of exactly how do we uh, include those without including uh, the one I remember I got very early, maybe I told Fiona about this because it happened after the, in the very first job talk I ever gave. Someone said, well, if the government raises the speed limit from 55 to 65, and they know that as a result there'll be you know a thousand uh, uh, traffic deaths um, from that, shouldn't that count as as mass killing for you? And that one really stumped me for a while uh, because I thought I, I don't want that to count as mass killing, but I do want it to count as mass killing um, if they come in and try to reorganize the way you grow um, food against your will. And, uh, and as a result, they set off a mass uh, starvation. And uh, so the long and the short of it is, um, the, the way around that little trick is to say, if the government tends, tries to force civilians to do something against their will, so if they forced you to drive 65 miles an hour and you didn't want to, and that the government had a reasonable expectation that that would result in massive death, then we're going to count it as uh, intentional death. Um, but uh, but otherwise not. And there's more, it gets even more specific. There's cycles upon cycles, but it's a good uh, question. The, the truth is most of the deaths in the more recent period, um, uh, post-55, they happen in the context of civil wars and insurgencies, and so uh, the vast majority of them are people who are being killed. Some, some do die of um, uh, famine. You know, we have the... Um, uh, Cambodian genocide happening in, in that time period. So in, uh, m most of the deaths there were, were famine deaths. Um, uh, could, the, could the deterrence work if the UN uses this system? So I briefed this system to the UN, um, and I think they like it. They were trying to work on uh, internally on kind of one of their own um, that was much less, I'm not, it was less sophisticated uh, technically, let's just say. Um, and I, and um, so I think they, they like it and, and will use it internally. Um, what if they used something like this externally? Um, my view is, um, again, I said this earlier, I think the best effect of that would be to shame other countries rather than a deterrent effect. Because for deterrence to work, I think there's, there's still, we need that next step. They have to fear that being high on the list leads to um, you know, some threat that they'll be overthrown or something like that. And I see that as a very far off, uh, if ever, um, result of something like this. But much more possible is being high on the list leads to um, some international boycotts, either by uh, countries or, or by particular companies or uh, consumers who refuse to buy products from that country, and, uh, and that might lead to, um, to certain changes. So that's another way the system um, could work. Uh, the Philippines, um, Duterte. Um, uh, so right now those deaths are not counting. It's one of these really tough uh, questions. Uh, right now those deaths are not counting, but we're trying to look, because uh, uh, they fit that problem that I said at the beginning, they seem to be unrelated uh, criminals who are being killed in a kind of law and order um, crackdown. As far as we know, they're not uh, part of some group that uh, in which the... Uh, agents, uh, the, the criminals, see themselves as connected in any way. They're 
um, from diverse regions and uh, diverse ethnicities, and um, they're just suspected of being uh, criminals in one way, shape, or form. And so those don't count for us. But other times and other places, regimes have used this kind of law and order um, uh, uh, crackdown as a way to actually just crack down on their political opponents. And so we are trying to learn whether th that is, in fact, what's going on in the Philippines uh, or not. And that would be how the, the, the decision would hinge on whether this counts or not. Okay, yes. I just have a quick clarification question about when you're talking about the false positives that you were getting. Are these false positives as in no violence occurred or that the threshold of violence didn't reach your definition? Uh, so no violence um, that uh, passed the threshold in that year that our model gave it a high score. So in fact... The, the good news, so I said oh, it's bad, you see that we have 20 false positives for every one true positive, but if you look at those 20 false positives, um, first of all, almost all of them have some violence, and a big chunk of them are countries that then went on to have a mass killing, but just not in the year that we predicted. Instead, it's the year after that or something like that. If you take all of those countries out and you just sort of pick the ones that are air balls, where we just completely missed um, the target, it's a much lower um, number. So we do feel a little bit better that way. But again, uh, the whole point of this is we don't get to make excuses. So um, we said this is how we, uh, we code our accuracy, and this is how we, we code it. Um, we don't get to go back later and say, oh, we were kind of right on that. Um, and, and my view is um, that's the way you improve. You have to see where you were wrong. If you don't know where you were wrong, uh, there's no way to help yourself um, be right again uh, the next time you try. Okay. Um, well, this discussion has raised lots of really interesting um, methodological issues, ethical issues, policy issues, and I think I speak for all of us in thanking you for a really stimulating discussion. Thank you. Thank you. And I, I encourage you all at least go visit the website, and uh, if you have any interest at all in joining um, our, uh, our expert pool, we would love to have more um, experts. Um, and, and you could do some, some good. And, and uh, in some ways, it's a fun way to learn about um, these countries if, uh, if you care about what's happening.